Howdy, everyone. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. Love, love, love this company. You'll be hearing all about them later from me later in the episode. But now, on with the show. Central banks have a tougher time fighting deflation than inflation. They don't operate through the supply side. They operate through the demand side. And so you're going to tell me the Fed can't kill the Fed can't kill inflation. Yes, the Fed can kill inflation. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of On the Margin today. I'm joined by Dave Rosenberg, the founder of Rosenberg Research. David, welcome to the show. Well, thanks uh, for inviting me. No better way to spend a Friday afternoon, so I'm looking forward to the uh, to the conversation. Absolutely, my friend. Absolutely. Um, let's just get right into it here. Um, you know, I'd love to get your view uh, just on how you view uh, what your thoughts are on inflation, right? Maybe let's talk about it in the short term as well. Uh, you were right, I would say, a couple of months ago in a room full of bulls. I think you were the one saying, hey, guys, maybe we've uh, gone a little bit far here and extended it's time to turn around. Um, and now I think you're in the inflation is transitory camp at the time when essentially the entire world has said we are in a new era of secular inflation. Uh, so kind of why don't you walk us through our, our, your thoughts here? Well, look, I don't believe uh, in new eras, and frankly, I don't believe anything is permanent. Uh, maybe what about paradigm right? shifts? You believe in uh, those? I, I, I don't. <laughs> I don't believe in paradigm shifts either. But you know, um, but things things do evolve. Uh, I think that uh, you know what we have to understand uh, is that uh, you know when you have a situation like a global health crisis, uh, obviously has pernicious. Um, cost push inflationary aspects to it, especially, you know, when you had China, for example, you know, shutting down cities that are port cities, millions of people that are critical to global supply chains. Um, I mean, that's been that's been ongoing since the pandemic started. Uh, the global supply chain uh, bottlenecks that have occurred, of course, uh, it went vertical in the past few months with the uh, those latest breakouts that we saw in China and their aggressive response. Um, we coupled that with a very aggressive fiscal and monetary policy stimulus. Uh, so we had these two things happening at the same time uh, that did create um, a very significant inflation upturn. Uh, I mean, kindergarten children know that. I think your, your, your comment about persistence is really the, um, the appropriate one. Uh, I, I, I don't know how we can define transitory if, if you go and look up any definition in any dictionary. There is no time stamp on it. Uh, I guess people thought maybe it'd be a few months or a couple of quarters. Uh, nobody believed it would actually last uh, at least a year. But I think we have to put a little perspective on it. Uh, we did have an inflationary shock. It, it is not the 1970s um, when energy was such a huge component of the economy, uh, especially relative to the share it is today. Not to say that it's not important. It feeds into so many things. But if you looked at an input-output table, say the U.S. economy, energy is both directly and indirectly less important than it was in the 1970s. And of course, the U.S. was a net energy importer back then. So when we had the uh, oil embargo, uh, it was very significant, a significant shock. Um, but remember that OPEC was raising oil prices every single year. I mean, that wasn't even a one or two year shock. That was a that was a, a 10 year shock. Um, you know, OPEC really stopped raising prices in 1980. They started in 1973, uh, 74. Those were repeated shocks that took oil prices up by a factor of 10. Um, you know, are we going to have recurring COVIDs or uh, pandemics? 
you know, are, is, is, is Vladimir Putin going to go from Ukraine to Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania? Will he go into Poland? <laughs> you know, um, so we've got, I think, a series of one-off shocks. I say one-off shocks. Uh, and what happens is that when something goes parabolic that you weren't expecting, as in the case of headline inflation, and, and look, it's global, the big danger is people start extrapolating that into the future, and they start to believe that this is actually going to be something that's permanent. Uh, I'm not in that camp. Uh, firstly, um, let's talk about the demand side. Uh, so we had a situation where demand came back much more quickly than expected because who thought about vaccines before Pfizer Monday? We were all told vaccines, it would take five years to get a vaccine. It happened so quickly. But of course, uh, you know, they, they were working on a lot of this, um, you know, a after SARS uh, in terms of vaccines um, for these sorts of pandemics. And then all of a sudden the economy reopens. So you had that demand influence on the services sector uh, after we already had a situation where there was so much spending on durable goods, the economy reopens and all of a sudden uh, the plunge in the economy reverses course. Uh, and on top of that, we get all the fiscal stimulus. The fiscal stimulus was on steroids, was unnecessary, untargeted stimulus checks, was really stupid. Uh, and uh, it wasn't, it was both parties voted for it. I mean, Donald Trump, big stimulus December of 2020, then March 2021, what I call the, the Biden budget buster. So gobs of fiscal stimulus that the Fed was obviously accommodating at the time, all when the economy, you know, Delta, no Delta, Omicron, no Omicron, the economy is continuing to reopen, creating its own natural demand. So you had the demand boost from policy stimulus, economy reopening, and that bumped against all the global supply chain problems. I mentioned China, but we can't ignore how important what has happened with Russia, Ukraine, uh, from a food and energy standpoint. And that was, that was another layer of cost push inflation. So yeah, um, has inflation gone up dramatically? Uh, has it gone up further than I thought it was gonna go? I think it's gone up further than what Muhammad Alarian or Larry Summers thought it was gonna go. I, I don't think anybody thought we were ever gonna get like an eight handle uh, on inflation. Um, and so 100% correct, but is it going to be persistent? Why will it be persistent is the question. I mean, when you're taking a look now at policy stimulus, it's in the rearview mirror. I mean, it's not as if, you know, this wasn't sort of um, the fiscal stimulus that you got with FDR in the 1930s with the New Deal. Now, that was a pretty funky deal and had all sorts of uh, problems attached to it, but it had very powerful multiplier impacts because that was real hardcore infrastructure. And it was fiscal stimulus that was happening year in, year out after FDR got elected. Um, well, what exactly was this fiscal stimulus? It was basically untargeted stimulus checks. Uh, people will say, well, there's still a big chunk of that left on household balance sheets. Well, how do we know? The bulls will say, well, that's dry powder for future spending. Someone like me will say, no, actually, I think that if you look at most of the surveys on this sort of stimulus, the cash stays on balance sheets, uh, basically indefinitely, and never really finds its way into the economy. Um, but for a time, whatever it was that got spent, because it was such a huge amount of stimulus, even a small amount of it getting spent had a huge impact on growth and had a hu huge impact on inflation. But let's face it, uh, fiscal stimulus is in the rearview mirror. We're now entering into, I, I went back and looked at the data back to 1960. We've never had a year 
where fiscal restraint was so acute. Uh, I mean, when you're taking a look at the plunge in the fiscal deficit, I mean, right now the government is running surpluses, which I guess mm -hmm. would make the Tea Party, well, the remnants of the Tea Party, very happy. But the fiscal thrust for the economy is negative right now. It is actually anti-inflationary. Fiscal policy is anti-inflationary. The inflationary thrust was last year's story. And then we have monetary policy. And, and the Fed has basically said enough is enough. Like you, you can't say that, oh, well, the, the Fed is accommodating all this inflation. No, they said enough is enough. Fed policy is changing and not just through interest rates, but also through uh, the balance sheet. And mm. you know what's interesting is that back on March 3rd, at the semi-annual congressional testimony that Powell was delivering uh, in a back and forth with uh, Senator Shelby from Alabama, uh, yeah, Powell's comparing himself to Paul Volcker, right? Uh, and he says Paul Volcker, not just once but twice, said the greatest economic public servant of his era. Uh, well, so, you know, from my lens, Jay Powell, um, you know, he, he, he pivots in both directions. But let's just say for the here and now, he didn't compare himself to Arthur Burns. Uh, he didn't compare himself to William Miller. He compared himself to uh, Volcker, and uh, Volcker did kill supply-side inflation. Uh, and he killed it by back-to-back -back recessions. Because the one thing we know about central banks is that they can't control the supply curve. They can actually control the demand curve. So we have totally different fiscal policy setting. People still are looking at the at the rearview mirror. Fiscal policy is hugely restrictive. Monetary policy has become hugely restrictive. Uh, there's no doubt that, you know, how do we know, do we know with any certainty what the global supply curve is going to look like in the future? I mean, who knows? The shape of globalization, deglobalization, uh, you know, uh, onshoring, nearshoring. Uh, I could see over time that, that that's complicating. That is a complicated inflation picture from the supply side and and things are going to change from a globalization standpoint we just don't know is it going to be dramatic is it going to be glacial uh whatever happens on the globalization story i think it's going to be like a race between watching you know grass grow and paint dry i mean it's not as if you snap your fingers say oh it's the end of globalization as we know it and we're going to get huge cost push inflation it's it's not clear but it is clear that the the global supply curve is going to be more, say, inflexible or inelastic compared to what we were accustomed to in the past 20 or 30 years. I will grant you that. But what's changing at the margin right now is not the supply curve anymore. It's the demand curve, the aggregate demand curve, because policy is tightening, both fiscal and monetary. And um, the U.S. is driving the bus on this. And uh, the risk is that the Fed historically has always overdone it in both directions. They overstay it on the easing cycle, then they, then they overstay it on the tightening cycle. Uh, and I think what the primary risk is going to be that even with this sclerotic supply curve, uh, the overriding disinflation momentum is going to come from the fact that we're going to have demand destruction. And so that's what solves uh, the inflation problem. So uh, am I fussed about inflation right now? No, uh, I think that the pressures are going to subside rather dramatically over the course of the next 12 to 24 months. What happens thereafter? What happens to the supply curve? You know, are we are we in a new era of uh, of labor power? I mean, I mean, you hear a lot about it. I, I'm not I'm not so sure that's going to happen either. And I'll tell you why. Because when you're taking a look at what how companies are automating right now. Companies right now, what's interesting to me is that the capital labor ratio is starting to go up. 
So companies are basically saying, okay, fine. Um, you know, uh, you don't you you don't want to go back to work. You know, you made a gobs of money in the stock market, so we've got this great retirement theme, or uh, or people have just changed their work ethics or their habits post pandemic, and that's fine. Companies, and if you're taking a look at what's in a bona fide uh, budding bull market, is corporate spending on on robotics. So, uh, you know, that's basically it. It's like, you know, Thomas Malthus said uh, over 300 years ago that, you know, that uh, we were going to all starve to death because of uh, the population was going to outstrip food supply. And he didn't actually factor into the fact there is something called human ingenuity. So, uh, so this is a case, I think, where a lot of the uh, inflation rhetoric, I think, is overdone. I think it's just a case of human nature, where a lot of market pundits and media types and economists, the tendency, human nature-wise, is to always extrapolate the most recent experience into the future. Uh, people don't realize, what was the trend before the pandemic? We had 3.5% unemployment. We had Donald Trump just boasting whenever he could about the lowest unemployment for women, for students, for minority groups. Where was inflation? 2%. Where was wage growth? 3%. Um, and so the, we're, how do you know we're not going to go back to that pre-shock world? And I think we're going to go back to that pre-shock world. I actually think the big risk is the combination of the fiscal contraction and the monetary contraction. You know, what's interesting to me, if you, if you looked at the money supply numbers, M1 and M2 both contracted uh, in the month of April. Money supply is actually contracting. Liquidity is coming out of the system. And it's funny because all the people talking about monetary inflation, that's yesterday's story. You have money velocity that is still on the floor. There's no pulse. The money supply is actually slowing down dramatically. Actually, to have M2 go down in any given month, which it did in April. People don't, I have to show them the data. You're telling me M2, M2 went down? Nobody talks about that. Well, of course, because nobody's going to talk about it because it doesn't fit into the consensus inflation narrative. M2 contracts. Uh, is a is a one in fifty event, but the year over year trend. By the way, the year over year trend in M two has gone from double digits all the way down to eight percent. It's by the way back to where it was pre COVID. Mm. So don't talk to me about monetary policy being inflationary. Yesterday's story. Certainly don't talk to me about fiscal policy being inflationary. That's yesterday's story. All this stuff is moving in reverse. Mm. And so I'm not going to say that my disinflation view is premised on some miraculous. I mean, hopefully these supply shocks are going to abate. I'm not relying on that. I don't have to rely on it because I'm looking at the, at, at the, at the demand curve shifting to the left hmm. at a faster rate now than the supply curve is shifting to the left, as I sound like an economics 101 professor. Hmm. The demand curve is shifting to the left faster than the supply curve is. And that's what's different between now and six months ago and 12 months ago and that will that's what leads you to inflation surprises to the downside not the upside yeah, I, I really like the way that you frame this in terms of looking in the rearview mirror, right? Focusing in on CPI, which is, of course, a lagging indicator as opposed to what's kind of coming down the pipe. Uh, so I'd love to get your thoughts. Like, how could we kind of test this hypothesis? What are some of the leading indicators that you're that you're looking at right now that would kind of confirm your thesis or maybe disprove it? Well, look what the retailers are telling you. The retailers are telling you there's a completely different shift right now. This is something new. You always have to think at the margin what's changing. Consumers are now pushing back on price increases. And if they're not pushing back, they're changing their pattern of behavior. You know, it's very interesting that um, that when you, when you listen to the call from uh, Dollar General, for example, high-income people are starting to shop at the discount stores. 
the low income people that are shopping at at, at, at say the the Walmarts and, and um, the Targets, um, they're buying food uh, and they're buying necessities. Uh, they're not buying discretionary items. There's been a very big shift in household attitudes. Um, they're shifting their budget towards frugality, and it's across the it's across the income strata. So when you're talking about inflation, inflation is some combination between um, businesses' ability uh, to charge prices, but it's also about the consumer ability and their willingness to accept those prices. So we're starting to see a shift in the complexion of the U.S. consumer. Mm. Uh, on top of that, uh, even the companies, let's say like like Macy's, for example, uh, that reported very decent uh, earnings, um, and you take a look at the broad gamut, uh, there's a massive inventory problem right now in retail America, uh, where even the ones even the even the ones that have hung in rather well, their inventories are double digit growth. Uh, some are like you know 30, 40 percent. Um, we have never seen you got you got retail inventory growth year over year. We got the numbers for April uh, that are at record highs. And this is what I mean about, you know, everything is still related to the distortions around the pandemic. You could say also the distortions around uh, the Russian waged war in Ukraine. But, you know, this is what's happened. All the distortions that have taken place that have been, you know, in, in one point in time, deflationary, then inflationary. And then I think it'll be deflationary again. Look, when the, when the pandemic started in the winter of 2020, everybody believed that uh, this was the Black Plague. And like I said, what do we know about vaccines? We locked down the economy uh, and everybody got rid of inventory. I, I mean, you, when you looked at the poster child for uh, the initial stages of the runaway inflation, it was in the used car market. Well, of course, because the, the fleets just got blown out. Nobody wanted inventory of autos. Nobody wanted inventory of clothing. Look, what, what did the farmers do? They called their herds. Um, and nobody was going out to restaurants. So the only food, okay, you'd order online from a, uh, you know, from, from, from your local grocer. You, and, and then next thing you know, uh, everybody gets rid of their inventory. Nobody wants to hold inventory. And then the economy reopens. And then nobody's got any inventory. And then you want to get inventory, but then you got these supply chain problems. So you'll do whatever you can. You'll outsource, you'll source your inventory from somewhere else. So all of a sudden, we went from no inventory, I can't get enough inventory. We've just swung. If you look at the chart, if you look at the inventory cycle, we all, always had inventory cycles. They became more muted over time because of technology and just-in-time inventories. But there's always been an inventory cycle. Alan Greenspan wrote his PhD thesis uh, on the inventory cycle. This has been such a compressed cycle. It's been incredible. So look what's yeah. happened. We went from no inventory. We have never been this over-inventoried before, uh, say in the retail sector, which is hitched to the consumer. So what's going to happen next is we're going to have we're going to see some very heavy price discounting to move this stuff off. Uh, because why? Because the the retailers thought we we're going to have a different level of demand. Um, and their outlooks, and you can see the outlooks are coming down, uh, that the demand is not going to be there. Well, why is that? It's because the Fed is tightening policy. Mortgage rates have soared above 5%. You're seeing what's happening in the housing sector. Well, there's something else to consider, inventory. We just got the numbers this week on new housing inventory, nine-month supply. 
a normal market six months supply. This time last year, the new housing inventory was four and a half months supply. So we've all of a sudden, in the span of a, less than a year, moved from a very undersupplied housing market to an oversupplied housing market. Next is going to come home price deflation. Nine months supply of inventory, I will tell you historically, a year later, home prices go down. And I don't know if people, people now see, oh, well, stock prices actually can go down. The Fed is not always your friend. Um, that we can actually take the N out of Tina, that there actually is an alternative, otherwise known as maybe cash. Um, but now uh, you've got excess housing inventory, even in the existing market, the unsold inventory is at a six-month high. Inventory accumulation in the retail sector, these are big problems. And what about the, the next thing when you're asking me what I'm looking at, what about productivity? Nobody talks about this stuff. Um, now, I can see that because, well, a bond trader can't trade around productivity. Well, why bother <laughs> looking at it? It's not like the retail sales or the industrial production or the non-farm payroll numbers. Well, why bother looking at productivity? But here's the thing. Productivity was down 7.5% in the first quarter. Now, you would say, well, okay, part of that is Omicron-related distortion. That much is true. But it was the worst quarter for productivity since 1947. It wasn't just, oh, it, it's not a very good productivity number. It was horrible. But you see, productivity has actually gone negative now to the past three quarters, which, by the way, only normally happens in the context of an economy heading in recession. But what's it telling you? What's it telling you about um, when, say, in the past three quarters, business output is up, say, 2.5% at an annual rate, but businesses added labor input at a 6% annual rate? So you see what I'm saying is that businesses added twice as much labor input as really what their output schedules and order books really required. That's why productivity is declining. That's why profit margins are coming under pressure. So do you think that the corporate sector is going to be willy-nilly hiring en masse? I'll hire anybody uh, like I was six months ago. Uh, no. Actually, what's going to happen now to right-size the productivity to the new economic outlook courtesy of the Fed's uh, aggressive tightening uh, is they're going to start to curb their labor input. In fact, I would hazard to say that in the next three months, I think we'll start to see either flat or negative payroll prints. And let me tell you something, that will catch the Fed's eye. I think that employment is going to start to go up. That's going to catch the Fed's eye. But that, in some sense, is what the Fed needs to see. The Fed needs to see slack emerge in the labor markets to get comfortable that the inflation is going to come back down in a manner. I mean, it's very, very important that the labor market starts to ease up. I think it's actually going to. Um, so look, I'm looking at um, the hiring attentions numbers. Look, look at the, you know, you, you got Jay Powell. This is where I think the policy mistake comes. You have a central bank chairman who focuses exclusively on one metric. You know what it is? It's Jolt's job openings, as if that's the only number. Uh, not looking at the fact that layoffs in that survey are going up. Hirings in that survey are going down. The challenger numbers, layoff intentions going up. Hiring intentions are going down. And, and so I'm starting to see, by the way, some cracks emerging in the labor market. Uh, and that's when it really starts to hit Main Street hard. That's when you really, you know, the, the, the consumer frugality goes to a new level. And that's when inflation is really going to come down significantly. I continue to believe people, and these are all the metrics I'm looking at. They're, they're all pointing in one direction. In fact, there's no such thing as a sure thing. I've been in the business long enough to know there is no such a thing as a sure thing. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. But i got to tell you something. Um, I, I focus on supply and demand because that will give you the price. Mm -hmm. If you're, it, it, Too many people are focused on the supply side. 
they're not focused on what's happening with demand. But I will say this much on the supply side. Nothing is more important. Nothing's more important for the supply side of the economy than labor market. The labor market is the key market. And I think we're going to be seeing a very significant easing up. As economists would say, there's going to be more resource slack, i.e. higher unemployment in the next several months. That will definitely trigger a, a more rapid move towards disinflation than what's being priced in right now. This episode is brought to you by Fireblocks. I talk to a lot of fast-growing crypto-native funds, crypto banks, exchanges, and the like, and they all tell me they have the same two problems. One, their treasury management setup sucks. They've got analysts wasting time and money on manual transactions. Two, they are not happy with their current security setup. They're sharing passwords, they're sending test transactions, and they're worried that their funds might be at risk. Fireblocks is a platform that solves all of that for you. They're a one-stop shop portal, which automatically plugs into exchanges, trading venues, etc. They source deep liquidity and solve everything from day-to-day crypto transactions all the way down to complex DeFi strategy. And the best thing about Fireblocks is that they offer scalable solutions with industry-leading technology. Doesn't matter if you're a two-person crypto fund or a 2,000-person crypto exchange, these guys have you covered. And the last thing that I'll say about this company is that I have known them for years. They are a high-integrity team. They ship product like no other. I would trust them with my own funds. So click the link at the bottom of this page and tell them that I sent you. Very, very important that you click the link at the bottom here. Otherwise, they're not going to know that I sent you. And then how am I going to get credit? So help a brother out. Click the link at the bottom of this episode. Tell them I sent you. David, I want to maybe double click a little bit on those two reasons that you just cited there, productivity and then what's going on in the housing sector. Um, We talk a lot about uh, at least housing on the show. Um, So when it comes to productivity, I'd be curious, do you have um, uh, thoughts on why we're seeing a a decline in productivity? Understand the analogy of input versus output, uh, but do you have thoughts on why uh, kind of we're seeing that decrease? Yeah, this is not structural. Yeah. There is no, I mentioned before, because, you know, the question would be, well, you know, uh, Mr. Rosenberg, with all due deference, I I always say, only my kids call me Mr. Rosenberg, you can call me Dave. But uh, the structural trend in productivity is still strong. Uh, You know, the the investment in automation uh, has been very significant. And I mentioned that earlier, that during the pandemic, actually, the only component of GDP to have gone up uh, as everything else was plummeting uh, was business spending and automation. Mm. that's ongoing. Um, this is cyclical. This is cyclical. The, the reason, quite simply, is to why productivity has deteriorated so much in the past n- nine months. Not very often you get negative productivity prints two out of three quarters. It's cyclical. It's because companies overhired. It's just that they overhired. You know, all the I, scram. I mean, we were printing. I mean, I mean, think about some of those crazy non-farm payroll numbers we were getting. Like last year, like, like you know, crazy non-farm payroll numbers. And, of course, people talking about people are job hopping. i got to keep these people. i got to hire more people. Record high job openings. i got to get more people because, because there was a different view. There's a different view on where the economy was going to be, okay? I don't think anyone was anticipating that Powell was going to start calling himself Paul Volcker. You see, he's comparing himself to Paul Volcker. There should be an alarm bell going off that Paul Volcker was revered. He so revered Paul Volcker today because he slew the inflation dragon. He was actually reviled in the early 80s. In fact, Donald Reagan, who was Ronald Reagan's uh, Treasury Secretary, wanted to fire him. 
<laughs> it keeps causing recessions. <laughs> Look, you, 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 as a central banker, you know, as we've seen over the decades, central banks have a tougher time fighting deflation than inflation because inflation, look, uh, you know, these central bankers, you know, they don't know how to grow wheat. They, they couldn't build a semiconductor facility. Uh, I don't see Jay Powell leading a Fed mission to, to, to try to convince Putin to leave the Ukraine. They don't operate through the supply side. They operate through the demand side. And so you're going to tell me the Fed can't kill the Fed can't kill inflation. Yes, the Fed can kill inflation. You'll say, well, but they tried in the 1970s, and we even had three recessions, and they weren't that successful until Volcker. Yes, 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 I know that. But I said before we had recurring shocks every year. OPEC was tightening supply every year. Oil was going up significantly every single year, and it was feeding right through the pricing system of the economy. So look, if you're going to say to me, I am a geopolitical expert, I'm going to tell you that we're going to have a war in Europe every year for the next 10 years. I'll say uncle, uncle, uncle. <laughs> you're going to tell me that we're going to have we're going to have a pandemic every year for the next 10 years. I'll say, okay, done. Okay, we're going to have massive stagflation. Okay, the supply curve will continue to shift to left. Look, if you want to convince me to show me that, how the supply curve, I can show you how the supply curve moved in the 1970s. Okay. Mm. And not just that, but don't forget, in the 1970s, demand was being underpinned by the demographics. I mean, the median age wasn't like 38. It was more like 28. I mean, we had a much more younger, vibrant, the, the, the first of the boomers were anywhere into their 1920s, and they were buying homes and cars, refrigerators, much more dynamic demand-led demographic by then. But But all that said, all that said, if you want to tell me I'll ask you, tell me about, if you want to say to me, I've got these models telling me that that deglobalization, we're, 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 like globalization is going to totally reverse. Well, you know, show me your model. Show me how you come to that conclusion. If you convince me, I'll probably come on board. Because all you're doing is saying, what? how is the supply and demand curve shifting, right? I'm there saying, like, I don't know. Uh, maybe we're at a cusp right now in terms of China. Maybe China has licked the COVID finally and they can start opening up their... Uh, their port cities, Shanghai, so on and so forth, that'll alleviate, alleviate a lot of the cost inflation uh, globally. Uh, but who, how do you forecast that? I mean, who really knows? What's going to happen with Ukraine? We have to make an assumption at some point that war is going to end, right? At some point that war will end. Um, what Ukraine looks like, I'm not so sure. Um, but I mean, is Putin going to create uh, another war somewhere else? I mean, the thing is that we've had these massive supply shocks are you going to forecast they're going to it doesn't really make sense that globalization is coming to an end i hear that all the time or it's going to dramatically reverse deglobalization that's all they're talking about at davos well i don't know what's what's probably more likely to happen this, this production from china look they were talking about years ago china's population peaked years ago their labor force peaked years ago people were talking about five six seven years ago that china is no longer the low-cost center so then Facilities started to shift towards Bangladesh, and they shifted towards Vietnam. Now it's going to happen because, and the big winner out of all this, by the way, is going to be Mexico. Because mm -hmm. when you take a look at Mexico's unit labor costs in U.S. dollar terms, they're a cheap place. They're right next door. Um, and so, yeah, it's not that production is not coming back to the U.S. U.S. is just far too high cost to manufacture. Mm. But... Um, but Mexico's right next door, probably a, a more reliable supply chain. And you could maybe say that about all of Latin America. That could be very interesting if you have a secular 
growth view, but that doesn't mean globalization is going to reverse. It means that its complexion is going to change and not necessarily uh, going to be inflationary. You know, we're talking about, look, it, it's, it, I can't understand it's so obvious to me as to what happened here. You know, Donald Trump gets elected in 2016. The same, the same inflation yahoos are coming out of the woodwork. Oh, uh, we're going to have nationalism, and we're going to have protectionism, and we're going to have populism, and that, and so massive inflation. And in fact, look at he did build an immigrant wall around labor. Did we get the big wage inflation? Did we get the big inflation? Uh, where were we before? I said where were, before the pandemic. Where were we? Two percent inflation. 3% wage growth in the context of the lowest unemployment rate in 50 years. And all of a sudden, no, 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 all that has just changed dramatically. No, we got hit with a global pandemic. And then we got hit with a war. Well, let's go back, put our historian hat on, and see the last time we had this configuration of a global health crisis and a war. And you go back to 1915 and 1920. We had World War One. And then we had the Spanish flu. This time around, order reversed. We had the pandemic, and then we have the first shooting war in 80 years in Europe. Okay? Well, uh, we had five years from 1915 to 1920 of inflation. It wasn't 8%. It was 15%. Now, mm. I don't know how we define transitory, not transitory. What I'll say is that once the Spanish flu ended, and it ended by virtue of the fact that pretty well everybody ended up getting it, uh, it just burnt. It just burnt its way out. There was no yeah. vaccine against the Spanish. It just burnt. Its, and and by the way, World War One we know ended. So wars. We do know that wars. Most wars, anyway, they end, uh, and we know that pandemics end. It's really just a matter of when. But what we know is that we had five years. I mean, because wars are inflationary. Okay, World War Two. Uh, wars are inflationary. They put pressure on material. Uh, they cost. Uh, they, they cause supply chain problems. So we had two massive shocks, massive shocks that we haven't seen uh, since that period of uh, World War One and the Spanish flu. 15% inflation. Now, I don't know, I, we didn't have social media back then, so I don't know how people managed to bellyache about it constantly. Um, but was that transitory? It was four to five years, mind you, uh, for 15%, mind you, not eight. What happened from night, but after the shock subsided, what happened? Ten years of either price stability or deflation throughout the whole 1920s. Once those shocks subsided. Now it's true the price level doesn't go down. The price level didn't go down. Paul Volcker is viewed as the greatest inflation dragon slayer of all time. Well, I got with all due respect, when he left office at the beginning of 87, the core inflation rate was 4%. It was a negative 4. He didn't create deflation. He created a momentum shift in the price level. And so what happened in the 1920s, after the shock subsided, now I'll just tell you, F. Scott Fitzgerald publishes The Great Gatsby in 1925. I got news for you. He does, there's, no, there's no, the great inflation era, new paradigm, doesn't show up in The Great Gatsby. Uh, well, why not? Uh, it was five years later. And the people that were extrapolating the inflation from those shocks into the future, I'm sure, had their hat handed to them, as they will, I think, this time around, too. Because the shocks will subside and we will revert to the old norm. The old norm is that in peacetime, you tend to have very low inflation. In wartime, and especially wartime that's been exacerbated by the health shock, yeah, we got, it, we got inflation. Why people think it's permanent, 
I don't know. Everybody mm. has to have a narrative. And everybody likes to basically take the current trend and extrapolate into the future. This, to yeah. me, is a wild gyration around a fundamental trend line towards lower inflation that's been around for a long, long time. And I don't think that these shocks, unless you think the shocks are permanent, I don't, then I don't think the inflation is permanent. Yeah, I, uh, you know, without commenting on, hey, I'll, I'll leave the the conjecture to smarter people like you. But one eye opening thing for me is, I'm sure uh, you maybe have read, and folks on this podcast have uh, read, uh, uh, Market Wizards, which is a book that came out in 1989, interviewing some of the greatest traders of the day, that Paul Tudor Joneses, etc. And I actually took some some pictures on my phone because, you know, you could trace this dialogue, you know, interviews that were going on back in the late 80s and transpose. I mean, you, you could literally come out of the mouth of politicians today, right? The deficit, this is going to lead to hyperinflation, blah, right. blah, blah. And it was unbelievable. I mean, they were talking about like $40 billion deficits, right? I mean, we'd, 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 we'd laugh at that now, right? That would be excellent if we could work our way back to $40 billion deficits. So it's just, you know, some of these arguments have been getting used for a long time. And the last thing I'll say on that is if you've been predicting inflation for 20 years, I I firmly believe you should not be allowed to take a victory lap now because eventually, right, a broken, broken clock is right two times a day. Eventually, yeah, at some point, there's going to be inflation in the future. I've got a two-part question for you uh, on this comparison to Paul Volcker. Um, and, and I actually want to bring it to within to the context of a couple narratives that I used to hear quite a bit uh, that I, I haven't heard quite so much anymore. So one, uh, this this might have actually come from, from Volcker himself uh, after he retired, but, you know, there's this kind of narrative going around where... You know, the Fed is in trouble because you could never do what Volcker did in the 80s. You could never take interest rates to 18% or whatever Volcker needed to do to kill inflation because of the amount of debt that we have today, right? That's kind of narrative number one. And then narrative number two is, you know, this whole crowd going around saying, well, we can never really raise interest rates, right, because of the enormous amount of debt that the United States has. You know, it's whatever it is. I don't even know, the 140% or whatever it is, debt to GDP that we currently have. Um, and yet we're talking about rates going up here. So what do you kind of think uh, of, of these two narratives? Because it certainly does seem like the Fed is, I, I kind of have my own thoughts here, but I'd love to kind of get your thoughts on these two narratives within the context of, you know, rising inflation and potentially rising rates. I think that Volcker, I, I think it was overkill. What Volcker did, I, I know he's revered uh, everywhere. Uh, he, 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 he way overdid it. And, mm. and, and I think that um, he didn't have to kill the economy as much as he did um to get inflation down what's very interesting is that when did inflation peak in the united states uh was in um uh, february of 1980 uh and oil prices peaked the very next month and oil prices peaked um uh and and started going down you know pretty well consistently right through to 1986. um and it was the first time that um, that the Saudis started pumping uh, more than 10 million barrels a day. They had not done that before, so that was a that was a that was a big help. Uh, I guess that you know a supporter of Volcker would say, well, you know, it, it became so structural and embedded. Uh, you know, look after almost a decade. And, and look, we, I talked about the embargo, but remember the inflation. You could argue you could trace it back to the Viet to uh, the Vietnam War. Uh, the guns, guns and butter fiscal policy from uh, LBJ. Uh, the real big kicker was um, was uh, uh, you know Nixon closing the gold window in '71, and of course that was a, a measure to, to get the U.S. dollar down. That was very, and that was inflationary. Dollar was weak. Dollar was down 12 percent. The broad 
trade weighted dollar index down 12%. I mean, the, up until just very recently, the US dollar was up 12% year over year. Is that a, you know, we're comparing, um, you know, what's happening today, the, the Fed seems to think that its credibility has been under attack. Uh, but how can that be when the US dollar has been strong? The US dollar was weak in the 1970s. And I imagine that maybe Volcker read that as a message that uh, the confidence was being lost in the value of the dollar in the international exchange market. So, uh, but Volcker was of the view, and probably correctly, we had uh, tremendous unionization. I mean, you read, you mean you read headlines today: Amazon, Starbucks. I mean, come on, you know, it's funny that last year the percent of the U.S. workforce that is unionized uh, is the lowest it's lowest it's been in the post World War II era. Uh, <laughs> you had you had you, you had cola clauses. So you had inflation built into the system uh, because you did have a wage price spiral. Uh, you know, half the time in the 1970s, wages were going up faster than prices, and then the other half, prices were going up faster than wages. This time around, real wages have only been going down. Like we've had increase in 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 in, in nominal wages, but they continue to get clogged up uh, with uh, the inflation leading to negative real wages. That's not a wage spiral. A wage price spiral is when they're, it's, it's a game of chess. Wages go above prices, prices go above wages. That's the spiral. So people talk about a, there's been no spiral, but Volcker was facing a spiral. Um, and uh, labor had much more power. And um, companies weren't interested in, in, in innovating. It was, there was no productivity growth. I mean, what was, what was technology in the 1970s? It was, uh, what it was a, it was a Panasonic transistor radio, and it was an IBM mainframe. Well, geez, it was uh, technology was a fraction of one percent of GDP uh, back in the seventies. It's almost ten percent of the economy today. So it's you know people like to compare the nineteen seventies. Uh, it's not comparable. You got to compare Powell to to um, to Volcker. Volcker was dealing with a much more inflexible, regulated uh, economy. I mean, don't forget that it was only in 1979 uh, that the Tokyo round of GATT negotiations finally were completed. Uh, we know which freed up uh, trade globally uh, in the services sector. Um, I'd say that actually Volcker, alongside the GATT round, uh, and, and that happened at the end of the 1970s, right? Uh, and combined with uh, OPEC loosening up on the uh, oil price side. Uh, he had actually a bit of a tailwind, uh, but you know, he, um, he went on a, on a mission. Uh, he had uh, Ronald Reagan's total uh, support, much like Biden's got. That's very interesting because um, uh, 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 Volcker was a Democrat. Uh, I mean, he, he, he got appointed by, uh, by Jimmy Carter. And it's funny that we have a, uh, a Republican, um, Powell, uh, heading the Fed, and he's got total support, unequivocal, uh, from um, you know from Joe Biden. So there's that similarity that there is actually political support. Um, Donald Reagan wanted to fire um, uh, Volcker, but Reagan said no. And don't forget, we had back-to-back -back recessions. Um, so you know, there's that aspect to it. But I think that Volcker did not have to go to like 18% interest rates. Uh, I think he went way too far. And we had back-to-back -back recessions that created tremendous pain. Uh, I think inflation probably would have fallen, uh, might have taken a little bit longer, but would have fallen on its own accord without that degree of surgery, mm. um, you know, that uh, 
you know, the, the, that he did. Now, the, the part that you asked about, uh, you know, the debt ratio in the United States, you, you, I mean, you talked about 130%. You were just talking about the government sector. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you add up government business and households, and it's more like 360%. Uh, so we're basically, we, we, the, the debt ratio for the entire economy at every level is is exactly where it was uh, at the bubble peak back in 2007. That, that's where we are. And so that is a fundamental constraint uh, on interest rates. There's no doubt about it that um, that the debt burden has acted as a pervasive constraint on how far interest rates can go in every single cycle. But it doesn't mean that rates can't go up. Uh, it just means that the ceiling is getting lower and lower and lower. And that's basically because not just of the debt, but also demographics and disruptive technology, what I call the economy in 3D. But it is very interesting um, you know, that, um, you know, you, you go back the past uh, 20 or 30 years. I mean, you go back, for example, to, you know, 1990-91, um, Greenspan pushes the envelope. This is after they started the Titan, after they eased in the context of the stock market collapse in 1987. They take the funds rate to 9 and 7 eighths percent. Next cycle, remember that they uh, hiked rates in 1994. They get the funds rate up to 6%. Um, then, you know, you go to the, the next cycle, they can only get the funds rate up to, uh, you know, 3%. Uh, you, you go to the next cycle uh, and look what happened. We, he, you know, Powell wants to go above neutral. They get it uh, to 2.5%. So the peak in the funds rate, cycle in, cycle out, is getting lower and lower and lower and lower. And, of course, why is that? Why is that? Is because the natural rate of interest is going down. I found it fascinating that at the several months ago, at the last set of dot plots, and when they you know when they announced their forecasts, the Fed and they hiked fifty basis points. They, the Fed could not have sounded more hawkish. Right. Uh, and then they're telling you at the time, well, we may take the funds rate to two and a half to three percent. They shift the dot plots. They actually cut their estimate of the natural rate of interest uh, from two point five to two point four. Mm. So that's what's happening for the exact reasons you're talking about: excess of debt. Uh, um, technology, disruptive technology, aging demographics, which is hugely disinflationary, um, is over time taking the um, the neutral rate down further and further. And that was the, you see, that people talk about the Pell pivot. It's unfortunate, you know, that people talk about the Pell pivot as if it's something embarrassing. It wasn't embarrassing. It was actually an empowering and enlightening experience for Jay Powell to realize that the Fed had been operating under a faulty presumption of where the neutral rate was. Uh, which is inherently unobservable. But he thought that he was going to be able to get the funds rate above 3% in 2018. And he could barely get it up to 25 Next thing you know, they're cutting rates three times in 2019 only because their research had concluded at the Fed that, that the neutral rate actually was much lower than they had been estimating prior. And so that's the primary reason. But your point about the debt constraint is a big part of that. Yeah. Um, you know, maybe uh, wrapping up kind of on this analogy, right? You've got Jay Powell comparing himself to Paul Volcker. How should investors be taking that, right? What is that saying? And, you know, people talk about the Powell put, and they they tend to talk about it in this very uh, binary way, which which is the Powell put is gone, right? Uh, my personal opinion is probably not gone. Maybe it's lower than it was before. Uh, but I'd be curious, you know, if you're an investor, kind of looking out into this market. Uh, you know, how should you be understanding these comparisons, right? What can you take away from this new rhetoric, the new situation that the Fed finds itself in? Well, you know that uh, you, you, you know what the Volcker put was, right? 
I, I, don't, I could guess, but with you, you tell me. Eight. Yeah. In yeah. August of 82, eight. So uh, <laughs> um, I don't think it's going to be that draconian. Um, yeah. Look, I, I think that um, I, I like to use that analogy and that uh, back and forth conversation with uh, with Richard Shelby um, because the Fed all of a sudden found itself in a situation. Obviously, inflation went far further than they had thought or anybody else and was staying persistent. And um, they were getting concerned about their credibility. Now, look, they were coming under attack uh, from uh, academia, from Wall Street, uh, from economists. Uh, I never found looking at the inflation expectation barometers and the survey data or the bond market or looking at the dollar. Um, you know, look, it's, it's a global phenomenon. I didn't find the Fed was ever losing their credibility, but I guess Powell thought there's a risk we're going to lose our credibility if we don't start to sound hawkish. Now, of course, they'd follow that up with, you know, some significant um, uh, rate hikes and pledges to do more. So it was more than just we got to sound hawkish. A lot of that, I think, was to show that um, we're not going to let inflation get out of control. So that comparison to Volcker, um, you know, he, he could have he could have compared himself to Alan Greenspan or Ben Bernanke, too, because uh, we had disinflation back then. But I think it's because Volcker, uh, even among young people today that weren't alive, you know, when Volcker was uh, Fed chairman, uh, that he is viewed as the person that broke the back of inflation. Now, remember, that was persistent, almost a decade-long inflation. This happens over a course of a year. People think we're into a whole decade of inflation. So, But uh, he wanted to draw up. He wanted to go to the, um, you know, to, uh, you know, to the, to the, to the God uh, who gets all the credit. Uh, it's funny that Ronald Reagan doesn't get credit. Ronald Reagan locked out the air traffic controllers, uh, and uh, that, that led to... And he deregulated uh, the telecommunication industry. Uh, uh, financial sector deregulation happened. Lots of supply side things happened with Reagan, Ronald Reagan, that led to the disinflation. People don't talk about that. It's always about Volcker. Well, that's I, I think that is just a, an emotional response from a central banker that I'm going to be that guy that's going to kill inflation. So trust me. And I think that was really the analogy. How it's going to work out is, um, you know, we talked about this, I think, before. We went live is how does the Fed operate is through financial conditions. They always have done that. So you had a pernicious bear market uh, almost three years back in the early 80s. Mm. Um, and how does the Fed always operate? The Fed always operates when it wants to have an influence on demand in both directions. It does it through the financial markets. So it's no different. How did we, I mean, over and beyond say, I mean, don't forget that the economy started rebounding long before Pfizer Monday. Um, the economy started rebounding in the markets in particular, even before the fiscal stimulus checks, because the Fed came in guns blazing to um, massively reflate the financial markets and then very quickly thereafter reflated the economy. But the game has changed where now they want to do the opposite. Um, so in answer to the question, you know, how does this compare to Volcker? Well, remember Volcker, we had a recession uh, because we had to get demand contraction to deal with the supply side inflation that's the similarity there's lots of differences but that's a similarity and um, one of the ways you do that is uh, through tighter financial conditions which is uh, really just uh, central bank lingo for wider credit spreads and a bear market in equities which is basically what we've had in our hands most of this year
Yeah. Um, and, and how long do you expect that bear to continue, right? Because uh, I guess the, you know, one thing that occurs to me, right, is the Fed, you know, I guess maybe the 2018, 2019 period where Powell, we, we've got the Powell pivot term uh, doesn't necessarily apply here. But, you know, I do think if things broke too badly, right, if spreads blew out wide enough, if there was a big enough dip in the stock market, let's say, uh, that maybe they would start to reverse course. So I guess my question to you is, I, I, I've heard you argue that we're already in a recession. I tend to agree with you. You know, what, if anything, causes the Fed to turn around and maybe it's not, hey, we're giving you, here's the liquidity bazooka and money printer go burr and, you know, we'll take rates back down to zero. But what makes them change their mind, do you think? And do you have any kind of thoughts on like a time frame? Well, the first thing they're going to have to do is pause. So mm-hmm. it's not as if, uh, so, you know, I, I could see them pausing this summer. Uh, I think they're obviously committed to 50 basis points at the next meeting. Uh, and I think they want to go 50 at the next. I, I think that they will, you know, and look, the, uh, this happened before the mid seventies, the fed tightened into a recession in the early eighties. I, I think they're quite prepared to do that. Uh, I, I think they're that concerned, uh, about, um, inflation expectations and their credibility, uh, that they may well be willing to sacrifice the economy. Now, uh, I, I don't think they're, they don't want a deep recession. That's for sure. Um, but when it comes to the markets, you know, there's no get in a jail free card, uh, even in a mild recession, I hear this all the time from people. Well, but if there's a recession, it'll be a mild recession. Okay. Well, 2001, we had a mild GDP recession. Um, but you see, the problem is that the mild GDP recession uh, coincided with a very significant earnings recession. And you came into that cycle with a very highly concentrated stock market in terms of the growth stocks of the day, but also very lofty multiples. And the old saying, the higher they are, the harder they fall. Mm. We had the mildest recession in post-World War II history in 2001. And yet we had a, uh, call it a, a almost a three-year bear market that took the NASDAQ down 80% and the S&P down 50%. So I say to those people that are complacent about, well, it'll, it'll be a mild recession that doesn't necessarily get you a, a mild bear market because the starting point of the multiple was so radical. Look what's happened this year. We almost went down 20% last week in the S&P. Wide swaths of the market that are cyclical and the financials were down more than 20%. But that first leg down was just multiple. Imagine right. that we went down 20% and it was all just basically because of interest rates. Uh, the multiple contracted. Now, all the multiples done, by the way, is contract to the 10-year mean. People say, oh, well, look at we've we've mean reverted no 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 no. that's not what mean reversion means mean reversion means correcting two excesses if you're taking a look at price earnings multiples it's a sine wave over the decades and you go from one extreme to the other extreme all the mean is is the mean is the average but there's never been a cycle where you just land at the mean you didn't when the multiples were expanding coming off the march uh the March lows of 2020. Did we stop at the mean? No, we went to the highest multiple since the dot-com bubble. So you don't stop at the mean. You know, that's why people say, oh, we've mean reverted. No, no, that's not what mean reversion mm-hmm. means. Mean reversion means you go from one extreme to another and the mean is just the average. And we've just basically gone back to the average. So here's the rub. We haven't even fully, quotes mean reverted the multiple yet, but we haven't even seen the earnings contraction. Mm-hmm. And that's coming next. So in a normal bear market, the stock market's down 30%. That's the norm. Um, Some are down 20, not many. uh, And some are down 40 or 50. Uh, And I'm there thinking it could be more in the 40 to 50% camp when this all said and done because of the math of the multiple and earnings. 
Look, we had a very significant recession in 1990-91. Do you remember uh, coming off the Gulf War and coming off the commercial real estate crisis? It was a pretty bad recession, okay? And then we had all the what Greenspan called 60 mile an hour headwinds. Uh, it took the Fed years before they started hiking rates in 94. Very bad recession in the early 90s. What did the stock market go down? 20%. Went down as much as it did just this year. Uh, and so it's very interesting that there is no correlation. Why is that the case? Because you have to focus on not just earnings, which is cyclical and part of the economy, but the multiple. So the higher you go into a bear market, the higher the multiple is, the harder the fall. And that's what happened is even though it was a very bad recession in 1990 and 91, we went into it, the multiples in the stock market weren't crazy. Okay, now the commercial real estate was pretty crazy and actually housing was a little crazy, but the stock market actually wasn't crazy. You had a, you had a, what you would call today a correction. Market was down 20%. I guess you'd say technically a bear market, but at the low end of what your range would be. So I actually think this is going to be very serious. Okay, and not just that, but I am worried about people's psychology and mentality. Uh, and this is what the Fed, when you're asking me what mistake did the Fed do, you know, um, they, they should have actually taken uh, the pages out of Alan Greenspan circa 1996 and talked about irrational exuberance a lot. Mm. But instead, all we heard on Wall Street, FOMO, fear of missing out, Tina, there is no alternative. The Fed always has your back. How could you be sitting there at the Fed? The Fed right now is so concerned about its inflation credibility. But how do they let things get out of hand? Mm. They had to have known that every single day in the wall street journal and on cnbc people are just saying well the fed has your back the fed has your back it was a very dangerous game to have people believe that the fed always has your back and so the number that actually has me most unnerved right here right now is 45 trillion dollars hmm. 45 trillion dollars is the naked long position that american households have on equities on their balance sheet you know you have all these economists saying oh don't worry about the consumer their balance sheet's so strong yeah no kidding because of these inflated multiples going into this year 45 trillion dollars of equity risk on the asset mix it's 40 percent 40 percent of the asset mix in total in the household sector from the fed full of funds data you know historically that number is like below 10 percent it's it's it was what was it 10 years ago 14 trillion dollars it's gone to 45 trillion dollars and if you look at the chart of household ownership of equities okay it looks like a hockey stick pointing north i'm so i'm very concerned that if this correction which is it's been morphs into a full-fledged bear market i'm concerned that it could create the conditions for a panic okay because people you know uh i think they were just basically misled 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 that equities are no longer cyclical so just continue to buy equities and we could talk about crypto at the same time right it's the same trade uh and so people were led to believe well this is a, this is a hedge against inflation no it's not it's just a different form of risk taking you might as well just buy the s p where at least you'll get a, a dividend yield you don't get any yield in crypto so anyway it was all part of one giant risk on trade uh i'm wondering how when we talk about the mistakes the Fed made, it wasn't, I, you know, I mean, this is a global inflation environment for sure. But how this unwinds, how these excesses unwind. And don't forget, the housing market's the same. The mm -hmm. housing bubble in the United States, when you look at home price to rent, 
home price to income, home prices in real terms, this bubble in housing is as big if not bigger as it was when I was pounding my fist on the table to deaf ears when I was at Mother Merrill back in 06 and 07. Do you know that the housing bubble is the... Now, I'm not talking about this turns into a financial catastrophe. We know the banks are much better capitalized. The price bubble in housing, and that's another $40 trillion of an asset and household balance sheets, hmm. that um, it takes now 10 years of wages to buy a single family home in the United States. Yeah, it's a travesty. Uh, we've actually taken out the bubble peak in 06 and 07. So, and we're in a, in a new interest rate cycle and all the lags from what's happened haven't kicked in yet. So mm. you're talking maybe about, about inflation, about consumer inflation. I'm saying out of everything else that I've always been talking about, asset deflation is going to replace consumer inflation. And I, I spend my life trying to figure out what is going to be the front page of the Wall Street Journal three, six, and 12 months from now, not what it's already been in the rearview mirror. Mm. And asset deflation is going to be another precipitating factor on the demand side uh, for uh, consumer inflation. You asked before about, you know, wh wh where do we go with the Powell put? Look, if they're serious, and we did the work on it, I wrote a report on it. If, if they want to get back to the 2% target, looking at the shape of the supply curve and how where they have to take demand uh, and then trace that through what do financial conditions have to get to to get the demand curve to where they want it relative to supply to get to 2%. So the answer is this. We're going to have to get high yield spreads north of 700 basis points at the least and the S&P down to 3,100. That is the matrix that takes demand relative to supply to a 2% level. On inflation if that's if the fed the fed might come out and say hey look you know what we're in a new world we're our new target whoever decided that two percent is the target what, what's magical about two percent volcker left core inflation was four who invented that it should be two percent was just a group of global central bankers put their finger up in the air and thought okay that's a good number but if that's where they want to get to rest assured that uh financial conditions have to tighten much more substantially uh so you know, they, they may, I think that they will pause. I don't think they're going to have to go as much as what's priced into the future strip. Um, but as they say, you know, I'm talking to you from Toronto, next door is Quebec. As they say, in Quebec, les jeux sont faits, uh, which means the game is over. <laughs> all right. Uh, with that, I, we could keep talking about this uh, for hours, I'm sure. But unfortunately, we've, that's all the time we have. Uh, David, uh, why don't you tell? Uh, talk a little bit about um, how viewers can find out more information. And we've got a little bit of a surprise uh, for listeners as well who might not be subscribers uh, to David's research service. But David, just give us a quick overview of uh, what Rosenberg Research is. Well, look, I encourage everybody to go to the website uh, or just Google Rosenberg Research if you want. Or, um, you know, hopefully there'll be, there'll be a link. But uh, you know, I, this has been a dream of mine for, for many, many years to basically not work for a firm that pitches product, um, but actually a, a firm that I own that I could just pitch my, my, my views, build my own team, uh, produce research that's valuable. I, I guess that, uh, I'm a maverick, uh, I, 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 I pride myself always on looking at the forest past the trees and playing a role as economic detective, trying to find the things. You see, economics, when you think about it, there's everything is there's, everything on the internet is free today. So mm. in my work uh, as an economist and as a strategist, 
uh, is to play the role of detective and produce research that is not a commodity, but that's very unique, uh, that has a unique lens. What I do basically every single day is I take the economic data points, I connect them together to formulate a cogent and cohesive um, uh, investment strategy uh, out of it. So it's always taking economics to the investor and telling them this is how you're going to make money at this part of the cycle and this is how you're going to save money in six months time. This is what I intend to do to reverse course. So it's a, a constantly evolving process. But, you know, if you go on the website, you check out the research, we do small picture, technical analysis, uh, short-term momentum, but we also do a lot of very big picture analysis. So I try, I don't pretend that every investor is the same. Everybody's got their own particular time horizon, um, but I have the research capacity uh, and the uh, publications that really cover all the bases. If you have a, a one-week horizon, I've got strategies for you. You have a one-year horizon and it's global in nature. So it's, uh, I like to think that it's very unique in that respect. Yeah. Um, and guys, we've gotten a surprise for listeners of On The Margin. Uh, you'll get a one-month free trial. Uh, so uh, like David said, you can either Google or better yet, click the link at the bottom of this episode. It'll direct you over to the website. You can check it out. Uh, get the one month for free. Huge steal. I highly recommend that you do it. Um, and as you can hear from David today, obviously the research is super, super sharp. So David, thank you so much uh, for you. coming on the show. A um, lot to think about here. We'll have to do it again soon. I hope so. Thanks for having me yeah. on. Thanks, David. Cheers. Okay. Take care. <laughs>